You can open your Bibles to the book of Exodus if you haven't already. We're going to be covering the whole book today, but we're going to highlight uh, a key passage in chapter 34. So if you want to land somewhere this morning, you can turn there. It's on page 77 if you have one of the Welcome Table Bibles. We're in uh, week two of a five-week series where we're doing this this flyover, uh, so to speak, of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also known as the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah. Now, we're doing this series uh, to help us remember that the 66 books that are contained in the Bible, they're not just individual books bound together as some sort of anthology, okay? They're not just some, some collection of individual writings about God, about Jews, about Christians. While they are individual books written by individual uh, people for specific purposes over a period from Genesis to Revelation, uh, the writings of these things over a period of about 1,500 years, just think about that for a minute, they all serve the greater purpose of telling one story together about God's redemptive relationship with mankind through Jesus Christ. Everything points us to Jesus. Only God could do something like that over that many years through that many people. These books of the Pentateuch form the foundational plot line of this grand story of salvation, this grand redemptive story. So if you want to know more of the introduction to these uh, first five books of the Bible, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message on our website, or if you have a podcast app, you can find it there too. Um, And and then uh, you'll also get caught up on the book of Genesis if you missed that as well. Now, we left off Genesis at the end last week with with Joseph in a coffin. Joseph is son number 11 of Jacob, who is also called Israel. Joseph is one of the 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And God's covenant promise to Abraham to make him a great nation and bless all the nations through his family had not yet been fulfilled, right? Because Egypt wasn't the promised land. And Abraham's family seemed to be dying off rather than growing. The book of Genesis closes with the deaths of Jacob, who is Israel, and with Joseph. But along with their deaths came this reiteration of a promise that God would certainly be with Abraham's family and come to their aid and bring them out of the land of Egypt and into the land that he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt... We're left at the end of Genesis with some questions, right? Will God actually come through and come to their aid? And if so, when will he do it and how will he do it? And the book of Exodus begins to answer these questions. So I want to ask God to open our eyes this morning and then we'll, we'll jump in. So would you pray with me one more time? Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray according to it that you would indeed open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things here. That you would, as Christ uh, has said, help us to see how all of it points to him. And that he would be glorified and we would be renewed. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the English word exodus comes from the Greek word that means uh, the way out or the departure and now we most commonly associate the book of Exodus with the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and God parting the Red Sea. You're probably thinking about Charlton Heston at this moment, right? And maybe not. Maybe you guys haven't seen the Ten Commandments. Um, I just, I couldn't help but picture Charlton Heston every time. I, anyway, 
That's not important. Um, while these events, though, are important in the book, in the book of Exodus, we need to understand that that's not the whole story. And by the way, just, just a quick reminder that when I say the word story, I'm not talking about some, some uh, children's book or some, some little you know, fable or, or fictional tale. I'm talking about historical events that are recounted in narrative form so that people remember. Okay? Over 40% of the Bible is written in narrative form. Exodus tells us the story of God displaying his power to rescue the people of Israel and to make them his own possession. The, the, the book is pivotal for us to understand the overall story of salvation that the whole of Scripture tells. We can't know God's salvation fully unless we understand the book of Exodus. Exodus is divided into two main parts. Chapters 1 through 18 tell the story of Israel's exodus departure way out of Egypt, and they include the accounts of Moses at the burning bush, the ten plagues, the Passover, and the parting of the Red Sea, things we're probably mostly all familiar with. Then chapters 19 through 40, the last two-thirds of the book, they take place at a mountain called Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. This is where Moses first encountered God at the burning bush, and it's where the people of Israel camped out until we get all the way to the book of Numbers chapter 10, when they finally broke camp and they left Sinai to head toward the promised land almost a year later. So they're going to be camped out at the base of this mountain for a year once we get to Exodus chapter 19. Now this last two-thirds of the book includes the giving of the Ten Commandments, which are a part of God's covenant with Moses and the Israelites. It also includes the incident with the golden calf and the instructions for building the tabernacle and establishing the priesthood. Now, it's going to be tempting for us to want to, to stop and linger in some of these major events, but because, like I said before, we're doing this flyover and not, not a drive-through, I want to focus less on the events themselves and focus on how these events connect together to one another. And what we'll find is that throughout the book of Exodus, God displays his glory for the purpose of being worshipped as the one true God. God displays his glory for the purpose of being worshipped as the one true God. And we're going to see God display his glory in three primary ways this morning. He'll display his glory through redemption, through relationship, and through restriction. God will display his glory through redemption. Exodus opens with this brief summary of Jacob's family that his uh, son Joseph had brought to Egypt and at the end of Genesis. There's, there's 70 descendants in Egypt at this point in total. Not much in the way of God's promise to Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? What's more, Exodus 1.6 tells us that, that Joseph and all of his brothers in all that generation had died, and so it seems that the, that the number 70 wasn't actually growing, it was dwindling at this point. But there's hope in verse 7 of chapter 1. It says, but the Israelites were fruitful. They increased rapidly, multiplied. They became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Do you hear the language there of the creation mandate back in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God used the same language when he reiterated his covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis 17, he told Abraham, I will multiply you greatly, I will make you extremely fruitful, and I will make many nations come 
from you and kings. The beginning of Exodus is reminding us that God is keeping his promise. He's a promise-keeping God. But the favor that Joseph had with the Pharaoh in Egypt soon evaporated after Joseph died and a new king king came to uh, power in Egypt. This new Pharaoh felt threatened by the rapidly growing size of the Israelite community because he thought that they'd eventually outnumber the Egyptians and turn on them and overpower them. And so instead of showing him, them favor, he oppressed them with, uh, with backbreaking labor and made their lives miserable and bitter. And on top of that, the new Pharaoh tried to, to curb the growth of the Israelites by telling the Hebrew midwives to take the newborn sons throw them into the Nile River, drown them. But the midwives refused, and the Israelites continued to multiply. They became very numerous. And so Pharaoh commanded his own people, like the Hebrews aren't going to do it, we'll do it, told his own people to throw every Hebrew newborn son into the Nile. Now, kind of, it might be easy for us to just sort of gloss over that as a fact and move on. But, but there's a point to to why this is in this part of the story. We should be repulsed by this man. He's committing genocide against babies, and he's perfectly fine with that. He has taken what is uh, good, life, new life, and, and, he's, and he's called uh, ending that life, he's called that good instead of evil. He's redefined what is good and what is evil. And we learned from last week in Genesis that there's only one who gets to define what is good and what is evil. And it's certainly not Pharaoh, right? It's the Lord himself, the one who is good, the one who is the definition. But, but we need to understand that Egyptian pharaohs, they saw themselves as gods. And, and here we're beginning to see this, this setup of the showdown between uh, the power, between the Lord and Pharaoh. Do you ever notice? I don't know. It, you're probably familiar with the with the headdress of, of the Egyptian pharaohs. You know what it is? It's a cobra. You know why that's important? Pharaoh is the most evil person in the Bible up to this point. He's wearing a headdress that looks like a snake. In Genesis 3, God set up the showdown between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The snake will strike the man's heel, and the heel will crush the serpent's head. And all throughout the rest of Scripture, we'll see this, this battle taking place between different offspring of the serpent and different offspring of the woman, this, this battle between good and evil. And, and every time we see this, we're going to wonder, is this the final one? Will good finally overcome? Will, will the the serpent's head finally be crushed. Now, as followers of Christ, we ultimately know that the final showdown happened when Christ defeated Satan at the cross. Jesus' heel was bruised. He died. Then he rose from the grave and he crushed the serpent's head. And that victory will be celebrated and fully displayed when Christ returns and Satan and all of his serpent friends and demons will be cast into and all of his serpent seed will be cast into the lake of fire. But right now, we're not there. Right now, we've been introduced to the next seed of the serpent and the next seed of the woman. And this seed of the woman came from Abraham's great-grandson, Levi. What's his name? Moses. 
Moses' mother hid him for three months so that the Egyptians wouldn't throw him in the river. And then when she couldn't hide him anymore, she put him in a basket coated with asphalt and pitch and made, to make it waterproof. And then she set the basket in the reeds of the river on the bank of the Nile. And, and, and in what some might call a twist of irony, but we know as an act of God's sovereignty and his goodness, Pharaoh's own daughter finds the basket and adopts Moses as her own. In fact, she's the one that names him Moses. I've drawn you out. And then she even paid Moses' mother to nurse him for her. Does God care? God cares. The Lord rescued Moses from a watery death by placing him in a boat. Sound familiar? Fast forward several years, and when Moses was a grown man, he saw an Egyptian striking one of his own, a Hebrew slave, one of, one of Moses' very own people. And so Moses killed the Egyptian. Pharaoh found out about it and then tried to kill Moses again. But Moses fled to a place called Midian, where he met a priest named Jethro and then married his daughter Zipporah. One day while Moses was out shepherding Jethro's flock on the far side of the wilderness, he came to this mountain, Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And this is where Moses first encounters this bush that's on fire and yet not being consumed. And this is where we catch a glimpse of something beautiful here. Uh, in this encounter, God told Moses, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them. Before God ever brought the Israelites out of Egypt and made a covenant with them, he's already calling them his people. And he promised to come to their aid. This is vastly different from all the other so-called gods of the surrounding nations who were seen as cruel and unapproachable. Israel's God, who they didn't even fully know yet, was one who was drawing near to his people in love. It's also at the burning bush that God reveals his name to Moses. He's the I am, a.k.a. Yahweh. So whenever you see the, the word Lord in all caps in your, uh, in your Bible, in the Old Testament, this is what it's referring to. It's the name of God. The Lord is Yahweh. So I'll use those terms interchangeably this morning. And, and, and so Yahweh, or the Lord, said that Moses would be the one to bring Yahweh's people out of Egypt so that they could worship him on this mountain where, they, where they're standing right now. Moses made a bunch of excuses. And then Yahweh had an answer for each one of them. And ultimately, because he's good and gracious and patient and kind, he sent Moses' brother Aaron with him to confront Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, it's important to note what Pharaoh said when Moses and Aaron first confronted him. They told Pharaoh this, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go. Notice, Moses isn't saying, Let my people go. God is saying, Let my people go. Let my people go so that they can come out to the wilderness to worship me. Pharaoh responded by saying this, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? That I should obey him. I don't know the Lord, and I won't let Israel go. Yahweh was claiming the Israelites as his own people, but Pharaoh said that he was their ruler. Pharaoh worshipped many gods, but Yahweh wasn't one of them. Pharaoh didn't know the Lord, and he essentially dared Yahweh to come and take him. 
Come and take them if you can. But this didn't surprise the Lord because it was all part of his plan. He had already, before Moses and Aaron came and had this conversation with Pharaoh, back in chapter 4, he had told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would not let the people go. Why would God do that? So that he could display his glory and his power through both judgment and through salvation. Yahweh was going to redeem his firstborn son, which is what he called Israel in chapter 4. And he was going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son because of the genocide that Pharaoh committed against the Israelite children. God was going to bring about justice and save his people from that wicked snake, Pharaoh. Now, it's very clear throughout the telling of the ten plagues that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Moses is believed to be the author of this, and he doesn't mince words here. He goes back and forth. Both things are true. And the tension between these two realities is not resolved in this story, but they're still true nonetheless. Now, we don't have time to linger here and unpack how these two realities work together, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but Romans 9 gives a helpful testimony, a helpful, a helpful commentary on this actual story. Scripture is the best interpretation of Scripture, and so I want to encourage you, if you have questions about it, go read Romans 9 this week. But for now, the main thing we need to understand is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened so that God can display his glory through mighty acts, acts of judgment against Egypt and mighty acts of salvation for Israel. In Exodus 6, God told Moses, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and established my covenant with them, and I've remembered my covenant. And then he said this in Exodus 6, 6 through 9, Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. This is the first time the word redeem shows up in the Bible. And it's associated with God rescuing Israel from slavery through great acts of judgment against Egypt so that Israel could be his people and he could be their God and they could worship him. Now the problem here, though, is that Israel had no hope. They didn't believe Moses. And then what we see is that it wasn't just Pharaoh who needed to know that God is the Lord. It was the Israelites too. Israel didn't think they could be rescued. Pharaoh didn't think anybody could take them from him. And this phrase, you will know that I am the Lord, or they will know that I am the Lord, is a recurring statement all throughout the book of Exodus. It's a, it's a, it's a theme that just is strung throughout he said it three times in that passage I just read. In chapter 7, verse 5, God told Moses, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. And the Lord stretched out his hand ten times 
against Egypt in the form of plagues. And as the plagues progressed, God began to make distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites by protecting the Israelites from the devastation that he was inflicting on Egypt. Just before plague number seven, Yahweh told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. And here it is. Then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I've let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known throughout the earth. Folks, this is our God. Behold, our God, seated on his throne. He says, you are still acting arrogantly to Pharaoh against my people by not letting them go. It's a serious indictment. And now we see that it's not just Pharaoh and the Israelites that needed to know who the Lord is. It's the whole earth. I will make my name known on the whole earth. God displays his glory through redemption by acts of great judgment and great salvation so that all the world will know who he is and worship him. Before the tenth and final plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn sons, God gave Moses instructions to institute the Passover for the Israelites. Now, this event was so significant in Israel's history that the Lord established it as the beginning of Israel's calendar year and made it a festival that they were to celebrate each year as a memorial so that future generations of Israelites would hear of God's mighty acts and know that he's the Lord and worship him. On the night that he went out throughout all Egypt and killed every firstborn son, Yahweh told the Israelites to slaughter an unblemished lamb put some of its blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their house. And when the Lord saw the blood on the doorway, he would pass over that house and not kill the firstborn sons on the inside. You see, the Israelites were saved from God's judgment through the sacrifice of a substitute. When Pharaoh's firstborn son was killed, he finally relented and he told Moses and Aaron to take the Israelites and leave Egypt immediately. And as the Israelites left, God gave them great favor with the Egyptians who had been oppressing them. And the Egyptians gave the Israelites everything they asked for. And so Israel plundered their oppressors. Does God care? Exodus 13 gives us another little reminder that God is a promise-keeping God. I love this. It says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him when they left Egypt. Super easy to overlook that and keep going. But Joseph, remember at the end of, Ex of Genesis, he knew that God would certainly come to their aid, and God certainly did. And so they carry his bones out with them as they leave. Although, when they got to the Red Sea, the Israelites quickly changed their tune. When they saw Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh had changed his mind, and he set his whole army after them to bring them back. But in Exodus 14, Yahweh told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart yet again so that Pharaoh would pursue the Israelites. God knows this is going to happen. And so that Yahweh would receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. How? 
going to crush him. He's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to crush the greatest military in the world. And all the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. The Israelites were caught between the sea and Pharaoh's army. They had nowhere to go and they immediately became terrified and they yelled at Moses because they thought they were going to die. Moses brought them out. It's his fault, right? They're, they're shifting blame just like Adam and Eve. But the Lord split the Red Sea and, and let Israel walk across on dry ground and then when Pharaoh's army pursued him, what happened? Yahweh closed up the waters of the sea and he destroyed them all. Not one of Pharaoh's army survived, it says. And then Exodus 15 records the very first worship song in all of Scripture. It retells the story of what God did to bring judgment against Egypt and to rescue Israel. It makes it clear that there's no one like Yahweh. It's also the first time the word salvation is used in the Bible. Listen to Exodus 15, 2 and 3. The Lord, Yahweh, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Yahweh had made himself known to his people, and they praised him, not just as the God of their father Abraham, but now as their very own God, who has saved them and rescued them from death. But it wasn't very long before the singing stopped and the grumbling started. And then the next three chapters, 16 through 18, as they made the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai, we have several accounts of the, Egypt, uh, of, the, of the Israelites not being able to find water or food. And again, they immediately turned to Moses and blamed him for bringing them out of the wilderness so they could die. They even said that they had it better in Egypt as slaves because they could eat all the food that they wanted and had access to water. But the Lord, Yahweh, graciously provided what they needed in spite of their complaints against him because that's what Moses told them. You're not complaining against me. You're complaining against the Lord. Yahweh gave them quail and manna, water from a rock, and they, com they complained all while they were complaining and saying, is the Lord actually among us? Is he among us or not? Are you a worshiper or a grumbler? The reality is that even as followers of Christ, we all have a tendency to waver back and forth between the two. We have, we have these moments of clarity. Maybe you had some this morning as we were singing those songs. We have these moments of clarity where, of what God has done to rescue us, where it's so overwhelming that we can't help but just sing his praises and tell others about him. And then there's times where we take for granted the fact that his righteous wrath has passed us over because he punished his own son in our place and gave us life, and we grumble. We grumble about our hardships, and we remind God of the things that we think he owes us. We start to think that our old situation without him is better than our new situation with him. And that's a dangerous, dangerous mindset to have as God's people. That doesn't mean we can never lament doesn't mean that we can never cry out to God in our pain and trials. He hears our cries. He responds to us in love. That's what he did with Israel. But there's a difference between lamenting and grumbling. So what have you grumbled about recently? What ways are you tempted to grumble right now? And how might dwelling on God's glory through redemption 
Change your grumbling into worship. God also displays his glory through relationship. The rest of the book shows us why Yahweh brought Israel out of Egypt so that they would be his people and he would be their God and they would worship him. At the beginning of Exodus 19, we see that the Israelites have reached Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and they've set up camp at the base of this mountain. Yahweh called Moses up to the mountain and it was there that the Lord made a covenant with Israel and gave Moses the terms of the covenant in chapters 20 through 23. This is where the Ten Commandments come in. They're major terms of the covenant. Yahweh began the whole spiel by reminding them once again that he is the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. And then he said, do not have any other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourselves. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor and do not covet. And then he also gave them 52 more commands that elaborated on these first 10. But these were the cornerstone commands. If the people would carefully listen to the Lord and keep his covenant, God says, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, even though the whole earth is mine. And I will make Israel my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. You see, they would become his new representatives to the world, governing in his goodness on on his behalf, with his delegated authority and displaying the goodness of his character and his glory to all that he has made. He would allow them to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. The people were united in their response. They're like, yeah, we'll do everything that the Lord commanded us to do. Moses built an altar and they made sacrifices and offerings to the Lord and Moses sealed the covenant with blood. Sprinkled blood on the altar, sprinkled blood on the people and then Moses went up on the mountain with Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They'll be important uh, uh, later, not today, but in a week or two. 70 of Israel's elders and they all celebrated the covenant with a meal in God's presence. And at the end of chapter 24, it says that the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the, and the appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. When Moses went, it was a fire that didn't consume. And the people got there, the stiff-necked people. It was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. The Lord is not one to take covenants lightly. And the people were about to find that out the hard way. See, Moses went up and down the mountain several different times while the Israelites were camped at the base of it. And at the end of chapter 24, the Lord called to Moses, said, come on up. And Moses stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he was up there, the Lord gave him instructions on how to build the tabernacle. See, Mount Sinai was the mountain of God, but it wasn't in the land that he had promised to give his people. And so God had this plan, it was Yahweh's plan all along to come down off of the mountain and dwell among his people in the land he was giving to them, just as he used to come down into the Garden of Eden and walk in the cool of the day. And every piece of the tabernacle from the outer fence uh, to the Ark of the Covenant in the inner chamber was full of this imagery that would remind God's people of the Garden of Eden. Everything was ornamented with engravings of flower buds and blossoms and petals and served to remind God's people of life in God's presence in the garden before the fall. 
It was this beautiful picture of God's desire to restore his presence among his people. And yet, even as the Lord was giving these blueprints to Moses, in his desire to come down and be with the people, the people who had just recently eagerly said, we will do everything the Lord has commanded, what are they doing? They're growing impatient with Moses' absence, and they quickly broke the commandments before they really even had a chance. The, the, the ones that they just agreed to obey, they already broke them. Before Moses even came down the mountain, Aaron was at the bottom, and they said, Aaron, make us a cat, or uh, here's, here's some gold jewelry. Make us a god, and we'll give him credit. We'll give it credit for bringing us up out of Egypt. And Aaron, <laughs> I don't know, I just threw the gold in the fire, and out came this calf. That's what he says. We laugh. But I've definitely made excuses like that before. God's righteous fury burned hot against the people of Israel for what they had done. And, and he threatened to destroy them and make Moses into a great nation as he promised he would Abraham. But Moses sought the Lord's favor, it says, and he appealed to God's character, Yahweh's character and reputation among the nations. How will they know your name if you destroy your people? And he appealed to the Lord's covenant with Abraham and interceded for the people of Israel. He asked God to forgive them, and Yahweh relented from destroying the people. But he told Moses, you're going to take them up to the promised land, and I'm staying here. I'll send my angel with you, but I'm not going. Why? Because I might destroy them along the way. Because they're stiff-necked people. And once again, Moses sought the Lord's favor, and he said, Lord, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us. Because that's the whole point, right? Your presence with us distinguishes us from all the other people on the earth. And Yahweh agreed to go with the people then to the promised land. Listen, God is not a wishy-washy God. He's not changing his mind here back and forth. This is his plan all along. He gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle because he wants to be among his people. It's after this exchange in chapter 33 that Moses asked God for one more thing, like, since I'm finding favor with you, let me just request this thing. Please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God replied by saying, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Even as he's saying that, he's having compassion on Moses. God's glory and his goodness and his name, they're all one and the same. They're all wrapped up together. To see God's glory is to know God as Yahweh, to know his name, to, to be in relationship with him because, why? He's good. Now we finally come to Exodus 34 when God showed Moses his glory on the top of Mount Sinai. I wanted you to turn here because if, you, if you're somebody that marks in your Bible, this is a passage you need to circle because you will find these words all over the rest of Scripture. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, 
is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. You see, worship is our right response to the glory of God. The Israelites worshipped Yahweh when they beheld his glory through redemption. Moses worshipped Yahweh when he beheld his glory through relationship. Worship is our right response to the glory of God, not simply because of what God has done for us, although that is also true, but because of who he is. You and I are no more worthy to receive compassion from God than the stiff-necked Israelites were, than Moses was. We have received compassion from God because he is who he is, because he's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, and he's gracious to forgive us our iniquity and rebellion and sin. Yahweh was gracious to Moses even as he showed Moses his glory. If Moses saw the Lord's face, he would die. And so the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock while he caused all of his goodness to pass by Moses, all of his glory. And that brings us to the last point. God displays his glory through restriction. Chapters 35 through 39 are an abridged restatement of the original terms of the covenant. And they serve to show that Yahweh, who's a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, he has chosen to show his compassion to an undeserving people and renew his covenant with them even after they had already broken it. The people made everything for the tabernacle and the priestly garments just as the Lord instructed. When all the work was done, Moses set up the tabernacle and he consecrated everything in it to the Lord so that it would be holy. And when Moses had finished, the Lord came down off the mountain in a cloud. In Exodus 40, the last chapter, verses 34 and 35 says, says this, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see, Israel's sin had damaged their relationship with God so much that not even Moses could enter the tabernacle while the glory of the Lord was in it. The cloud came to rest on the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant that held the tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. And the Ark of the Covenant was concealed in the innermost room in the tabernacle called the Most Holy Place. And the mercy seat was made out of pure gold, and it had two cherubim made out of gold that were fashioned as one piece with the mercy seat, covering it with their wings. And there were also images of cherubim woven into the curtain that separated the Most Holy Place where God's glory was with the rest of the tabernacle. These cherubim served to remind the people of the cherubim that God placed at the entrance of the garden. The Garden of Eden to guard it against Adam and Eve coming back in and eating from the tree of life because they had sinned and God had banished them from it. A holy God must restrict an unholy people from his presence or else they would die in their sin. In Exodus 34, Yahweh revealed himself to be a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. But he will also not leave the guilty unpunished, he says. 
And so at the end of the book of, of Exodus, we're, we're left with another question. How? How will God keep his promise of faithfulness to an unfaithful people? How can he dwell in their presence and let them live when he is holy and they are corrupt? Now for Moses and the Israelites, the solution is found in the book of Exodus, and that's what Luke's going to talk about next week. But for us, who live now, who know Christ, the solution is found in the Gospel of John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Yahweh has another name that the Israelites didn't know about yet. It's Jesus Christ. And it's only through a relationship with him by faith in his redemptive work that we can have unrestricted access to God and live. See, he came into the world, like, but like Pharaoh, the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and like the broken-spirited Israelites under Egypt's oppression, the broken-spirited Israelites under Rome's oppression did not receive him. But to all who did, to all who did receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. His glory, his goodness, and his name are one and the same. And he proved that he willingly gave he proved that when he willingly gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross so that God could punish sin and save sinners. This is how God kept his promise of faithfulness to an unfaithful people, by giving us his one and only son, his firstborn, the one who had all the inheritance. He gave him to redeem us from slavery to sin and to bring us up out of death so that we can know that he is the Lord and worship him. So the question this morning for you is, do you know that Jesus is the Lord? Have you hardened your heart against him as Pharaoh did? Then let Exodus this morning serve as a warning to you that God makes his glory known through judgment. Do you feel hopeless like the Israelites did? Then let Exodus serve as a beacon of hope to you that God makes his glory known through salvation. Whether you're hardened or hopeless, my prayer is that you would see God's glory in Jesus Christ this morning and turn to him in faith. Now, if you already know Jesus as the Lord, then worship him as the Lord. It's the right response to his glory. And it's more than just singing together on a Sunday morning, although that's important, we talked about that. It's a way of life. And surrender to him. As Christ followers, we understand that we'll never be able to, to do everything that the Lord has commanded. It would be foolish for us to say that, right? But because our salvation rests not in ourselves, but in Christ, we can eagerly say, he has done everything the Lord has commanded. And by his grace, we too can live in obedience to our redeeming God. And that means that our lives ought to be characterized by gratitude instead of grumbling because we've been given grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. See, God chose Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, but he gave 
his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be our Passover lamb. The one who would deliver us from his wrath and rescue us from slavery to sin and death. Jesus Christ is God's glory on full display. And as his people who've been redeemed by him and brought into relationship with him without restriction, let us gladly rest in Yahweh's presence, in Christ's presence daily and worship him. Let's pray. Jesus, may we be people who display God's glory through the gospel evident in our lives as we live in surrender and worship to you. Amen.